0: This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Stick around for more at the end of today's program.
1: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
2: We ought to be meditating on the law of God day and night, and we ought to be growing in our knowledge of scripture. As Tozer once put it, only a whole Bible makes whole Christians.
1: Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend, uh, Dr. James Dalzell. James, how are you today? Well, Jonathan, it's good to be here. Uh, well, it is, it is good to be here. It's good to be here, especially because of our guest uh, today. We have the privilege today of having as our guest Dr. Ryan McGraw, and I have the even greater privilege of being just down the hall from him and uh, seeing him regularly, uh, and so it's good to have a friend, a colleague, a family friend on today, and uh, Ryan, welcome, welcome to Theology on the Go.
2: Thank you for having me
1: we are going to discuss today a little book that you've written called By Good and Necessary Consequence. Uh, It's in the Explorations in Reformed Confessional Theology series. And that phrase, by good and necessary consequence, refers to something in the Westminster Confession of Faith in its discussion of scripture. And so, Ryan, why don't you uh, unpack for us a little bit more of what what it means when it says a good and necessary con- consequence. This is in chapter one of the confession, uh, paragraph six, and it has to do with our interpretation of scripture. But could you tell us a little bit more?
2: Yes. Actually, the book that I published by the title appears in a series called Explorations and Reform Confessional Theology. And part of the point of all the volumes in the series is to take phrases or clauses out of our reform standards that people might have questions about and seek to explain what they mean and why they're scriptural and basically what we do with them as well. And so the phrase good, necessary consequence refers to the use of scripture. And what it means is that when we use and apply the scriptures, We're not simply looking for things that are taught directly uh, in express statements in the Bible, such as believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, but things that are required by the overall teaching of the Bible and implications of the text. And a prime example would be the doctrine of the Trinity, where we don't have a single text that outlines Trinitarian doctrine as it needs to be qualified properly to be biblical, but as we look at a host of texts that reveal who God is, then by good and necessary consequence, the Bible teaches the full doctrine of the Trinity and a number of other things.
1: So, if someone comes and says, you know, uh, you, you have to show me a verse where this um, teaching comes from, what, what this is saying is that not all doctrines work exactly that way.
2: Yeah, and in effect, this principle that our forefathers called good necessary consequence becomes the foundation of all systematic and practical theology. Uh, even in the simple example that I gave, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, uh, that's written in a context to particular people in the Bible. And when I appropriate it to myself, I need to say, I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I shall be saved. And that's a deduction from the text that's relatively simple that we do all the time.
3: Ryan, I like the fact that you bring up that all systematic theology and even all preaching, in so much as when we preach and we lead forth the meaning of the text, we're obviously going beyond the exact wording of the text. Otherwise, we would just pray, sing psalms, do the bible reading, skip the exposition, benediction, sacraments go home. In other words, it wouldn't be the exposition really is really is the work of the minister taking the text and deducing its necessary implications, making application of those to the congregation in front of him. With that said, how how would you respond to maybe a kind of biblicist accusation that this that this is a risky business, good and necessary consequence, because it introduces um, reason uh, into the process, and it, it you know, and I, we all we've all heard the term rationalism described as a kind of way of disparaging theology. Um, how is this? Is this reason? And is there a difference between being reasonable in doing theology and rationalism in doing theology? Or maybe that's, too fine a point, but maybe you can touch that.
2: Well, it's a good question and one that comes up very often. And I think we need to make a distinction between reason as a foundation of our faith and practice, and scripture alone has that place, and reason as simply a tool uh, with the Spirit's help to interpret scripture and to understand scripture. So, if we're simply basing what we believe and what we do on reason apart from Scripture, then obviously we would be off base and not reach the true knowledge of the true God. But if we use sanctified reason with the Spirit's help uh, to draw conclusions from Scripture itself, then what happens is we don't simply uh, learn what the Scripture says, but as you mentioned with preaching, we actually draw a link between The scriptures and the people that we're speaking to as well as to ourselves. So reason doesn't have a foundational role, but an interpretive role. And we're also not talking about using the scripture as a launch pad to get into every possible uh, implication we think might be there. But we're seeking to discern the mind of God as a whole in terms of what God Uh, has said in the Bible. And again, doctrinally, the Trinity is is a great example because we have to collect from Scripture what the Bible says about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the oneness of God. Uh, But also, we need to start putting together the pieces of the distinction of the persons and all the other components that go in. And what we're really doing is saying when we collect and gather the teaching of Scripture, how do we put the pieces together Uh, But we're also doing that with application. We're moving from statements in Scripture uh, to ways in which they actually grip our hearts and bring
3: us into fellowship with the Lord. You said something in there that I want to, if I can just sort of lock in on it, that it's not good and necessary consequence in which we take Scripture as a sort of pretext for any and everything, uh, sort of a launching out into a comprehensive arts and sciences sort of thing where we can take scripture as a starting point and then, you know, get a theory of chemistry um, or, or of um, analytic geometry or something like this. Um, but it's really, it really is a discipline that is meant to arrive at theological conclusions that the, that the text is requiring of us, even if not stipulating to us. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's that's correct. And I think as as Berkhoff put it in his older book on hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, um, God is different than a human author in the sense that he understands all the implications of his words. And the Bible is meant to reveal to us who God is and how we know him. And I think the best example is Jesus in his interaction with the Sadducees, because uh, they're trying to catch him in his words and uh, prove that there can't be a resurrection by pointing out logical absurdities in the doctrine. So they appeal to the idea that a man uh, is married and uh, uh, he dies and his widow then marries uh, his brother. And this happens seven times. And in the resurrection of the dead, whose wife will she be? And they're thinking we've got him. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't appeal to Isaiah 26, your dead shall live together with my dead body, or similar statements in Job and other parts of the Old Testament. He actually appeals to the burning bush passage where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was. And right, right now, however, these men, uh, their bodies are in the graves. Their souls are with the Lord. And Jesus is skipping some steps in the argument or assuming them to the end that if they're alive in any sense, they're going to be alive in every sense. And so therefore their bodies will be raised and God is presently their God and will raise them from the dead. Uh, This was so convincing in a Jewish context that uh, it notes in the text that the Pharisees saw Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And the assumption there is that God is aware of the implications of his own words. The purpose of that text in the burning bush passage is God Uh, enforcing his covenant promises and fulfilling them and ultimately resulting in the Exodus. And yet at the same time, the fact that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tells us something about himself and something about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in Jesus's mind, the resurrection. And the fact that our Lord uses scripture that way at least gives us a foundation that, that we ought to Uh, see the same types of things because he tells the Sadducees, you are not knowing the scriptures.
3: That's interesting because those scriptures don't stipulate the point he's making, but they give you all of the, what, the ingredients necessary requiring that theological deduction. Is that what we're saying? Is that what we're saying? Because I think when the text says um, should be necessary consequences may be deduced from scripture is, is, um, is the deducing um, something that we must do?
2: Yeah, I think I think it is. I think it is in that case, um, especially with Jesus accusing the Sadducees of not knowing the Scriptures and the power of God. It's as though He said, uh, "Haven't you been reading your Bibles?" And the issue there, yeah, and and the issue is really with good, necessary consequence often. Pulling out the assumptions in the text. Um, you know, another example would be Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well that assumes that there is a God and a certain kind of God, and it assumes he's distinct from the heavens and the earth and a, and a lot of other things. And so sometimes, uh, when we're talking about good and necessary consequence, that's what we're really doing is what is this text? Assuming and implying in an order to make the statements God makes,
1: Ryan, you mentioned earlier um, one objection that's often given to this uh idea, which is you know we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't introduce uh, our own thinking, our own rationality and and sort of put it over and above the scriptures and one of the things you said that I thought was significant was that even people who say all we do is read the Bible and teach the Bible, and we don't, you know, mess around with systematic theology, are really still making all, con- deducing all kinds of things from the text, even in applying it to themselves. What are some of the other objections, though, to this, this notion, this, this idea of uh, uh, reading the scriptures and, and deducing from them the good and necessary consequences that they contain?
2: Well, in light of what you just said, I've, I've found in my experience that the objections to this principle are usually very selective. So, for example, you might find a person giving an objection that this gets beyond the text of Scripture. It gives you the right to, to say anything you want and, and through a bunch of deductions get far from the text. And there certainly is uh, a danger of that, and we have to guard that by sticking as close to the text and the things the text itself is assuming and implying, not what we want to do with it or what we want to say. But some of the people that will make those objections believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and believe in the two natures of Christ uh, with two distinct natures and one divine person and yet they'll object to it selectively. For example, uh, when we talk about uh, other things like church government or infant baptism or worship, and I'm not saying anything particular about whether someone rejects or accepts something like infant baptism at this point, but what I'm saying is if we use the principle in other areas and recognize we must, the principle can't be off the table when we're discussing something like infant baptism or, or similar issues.
1: So how would you uh, articulate the way, the ways in which we keep it on the table and yet guard, as you put it, guard ourselves from going too far afield from the text of scripture?
2: Well, again, I think the guard is really asking uh, is the doctrine that we're trying to build or explain or argue for genuinely assumed in or implied by the text? In other words, uh, is it necessarily there? And the argument over infant baptism, which obviously is far less important than something like the Trinity or the person of Christ, is, is a good example because the question is not necessarily are there examples or commands to baptize households or children in the context of the new covenant. The main question um, actually becomes what's the nature of the covenant of grace and the church and are households and the children of believers can uh, included in the covenant. And receive its sign. We're also asking, uh, what's the function of baptism in relation to circumcision, for example? And people might disagree on the answers to those questions, but the nature of the issue is we have to look at broader contexts and broader doctrines in Scripture, and and say, are these things necessarily implied, assumed, contained uh, by them?
3: That's, uh, as, as the Baptist, I'll pitch, I'll, I'll jump in on this and say, okay. I think actually I, I agree with, I agree with you in that if we're going to have a, um, as they used to say, a good, honest disagreement, we have to, we have to agree on the terms of engagement. Um, and I think good and necessary consequences is a biblical and reasonable terms of engagement. Uh, so that then, so, so what we're, what we might dispute, should we do that is, uh, the good and the necessary, not whether we can deduce good and necessary consequences. Yeah, so then, exactly. then we're just, then we're just getting into sort of putting up our evidence, making our argument. But if we don't, but if we rule out of hand and I've seen these Baptist arguments, I'm sure you have seen them and heard them, um, which is uh, the Bible neither commands it nor gives any example of it. Therefore don't do it. Um, now, personally, I'm sympathetic to those arguments, but I do recognize the, And to your point, I do recognize the insufficiency left all alone of that argument in as much as it still has, in as much as that was never the argument being offered in favor, for instance, of fatal baptism. It was a good and a necessary consequence based upon a um, well-held Um, belief that the biblical notion of covenant required it. So I think, I think there we can, we can't really have that good and honest disagreement unless we agree that, um, some kind of deduction of good and necessary consequences from the text should inform our theologizing. I thought, I w- I thought you were going to say the covenant of works, um, yeah. which is, an, which is another one that is a sort of intro reform. You know, so John Murray says, no, there's no such thing. Or Meredith Klein says there is. And, and who's right? Because that exact phraseology, uh, doesn't occur in scripture. Yeah. Um, and I think, but the question is, it does scripture, does this necessarily follow from scripture or is this something that has to be true in order for what scripture is saying to be true? That kind of, yeah, that kind of scary. I
2: mean, the covenant of works, um, you know, the idea of an eternal intra Trinitarian covenant of redemption. Uh, those are our ideas that would come into this discussion as well. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and notice uh, as I'm talking about the baptism issue, I'll studiously am avoiding starting an argument about infant baptism and just uh, dealing with principle instead.
3: Yeah,
1: good. So, Ryan, that 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 brings me to my last question, which is, um, so one of the burdens it strikes me of of the little book is to say this is something important. It's something legitimate that, in one sense, all Christian people to so to one degree or another engage in and we need to be self-conscious about that um and and self-aware in terms of what we're doing um what what's the what would the takeaway be for someone who is persuaded by those things that this is legitimate that this is even significant important we all do it um is, is the takeaway now, you know, go read your Bibles more carefully, sort of the way you glossed Jesus' words earlier, um, go go read your Bibles carefully to think through um, all of these things, or, or how would you articulate that, that sort of application?
2: Well, I think we read the Bible in many ways. I think uh, by implication of God's commands, we ought to be meditating on the law of God day and night and we ought to be growing in our knowledge of Scripture. And I think one way we do that is, uh, as as Tozer once put it, only a whole Bible makes whole Christians. And so we need to know the whole Bible, read the whole Bible regularly. And as we're doing that, we're always reading in, in different ways and at different levels. And one of those is we ought to give attention to the context and the form in which God revealed himself, And try to understand the books as they unfold and in their context and the story of the Bible as a whole and how it all fits together. But we also need to step back and give summaries at times. And uh, for example, if I'm witnessing to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, we have very different ideas of who God is and what God is like. And when I address those types of issues, I'm going to need to go to particular texts in order to have meaningful discussions and move forward. But I'm also going to have to have some idea and some summary in my mind of what God is like. And that's where our catechism definitions or similar statements are actually uh, logical deductions of the whole book and putting together conclusions so, I don't just say, well, uh, what is God or who is God? See Genesis through Revelation. But instead, I'm going to say, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and changeable, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, or something like that. And so, we always need to have some sort of summary. And then the third thing that really comes to mind is we need to move beyond simply the descriptive material in the Bible to the prescriptive as well as the personal use and application. And Jesus says, knowing the only true God and His Son Jesus Christ is eternal life. And by implication, I need to know the only true God and His Son Jesus Christ if I would have everlasting life. And as we read the Bible, we're looking at the whole... We're looking at how the pieces fit in the summary. But we're also looking at uh, our own communion with God as well as that of others and their communion with God. And without bringing in good and necessary consequence, not just in Bible reading but in sermons, we really would not be able to say, thus says the Lord behind any of our application of the text. And we need to be able to tell people, this is what God says. By implication, this is what it means for you and for all of you. And it may require a response of faith. It may require repentance. It may require obedience. But all of those things have to be brought out by implication and necessary implication if they're going to have any divine authority at all.
1: Ryan, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And we, of course, commend this book to our listeners Um, and, and, and the other things that you've written as well, we hope to have you on again soon to talk about, um, any number of other topics on which you've, you've written so well. So thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Well, James, it's always a joy for me to to talk to Ryan. But in the interest of full disclosure, I should say he and I were just talking out in the hallway before uh, we came in and started to record. So I think I neglected to, in my introduction, give the full scope of his work or even even his title. Uh, he, he's a he's a professor of theology here. In fact, holds uh, the Smith Chair of Theology here at uh, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and has written a number of very, very helpful books. You and I have been talking about having Ryan on for a while. And right. it was, there really was, we could, we could have talked to him about any number of topics and, and I hope we will uh, down the road, but this is an important one. And, and what he started with to me was very significant because he said, in a sense, every Christian preacher is doing this because even a phrase like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, is something that the consequences of which need to be inferred from the text. Right. And I think there's a, there's a fear of reckless
3: speculation uh, that I think in one sense, almost cows us into this position of, for lack of better term, biblicism uh, in which um, I'll just read the text and let it stand at that. Um, and that way I don't run the risk of, polluting it with my reason and there is that i mean there is that function of reason when the when the confession says that they may be deduced from scripture the act of deduction is not what the text is doing for you it's what the text is demanding you do Um, and and of course the guidance the principles that produce that right deduction are given by the text but i think there's this fear this fear that we may corrupt it by reason because we've all seen instances, or perhaps have been guilty of it ourselves, in which we have intruded our reason into the theologizing process and actually, you know, and actually come to wrong conclusions. But I think this is where the language of the confession that Ryan is emphasizing is so helpful, Um, good and necessary, not um, dubious and probable, (laughs) if I can, you know. Or, or, or Or even good and probable. Um, right, or even good and probable, um, or, um, any way you mix that, uh, there's right. danger involved. So this is, I mean, any sort of deduction from principles requires careful thought. Uh, but this is also why it, I mean, this isn't just the reason it takes time to write theological treatises. This is also the reason it takes time to prepare a sermon. Um, I don't know if you ever met those people in your, in your life that said, you know, don't work so hard on your sermon. Just go up there and share your heart with those people. I don't know if you ever got that counsel. I had that counsel. Um terrible. I never took that counsel. Um, because
1: it just I I no knew one, it was a no one wants re- you to share their heart with <laughs> them. <things. laughs> I knew you it was a that, trend wreck that.
3: waiting to happen. Yeah. That I actually needed to have an authoritative text. And if I was going to say or use any words that went beyond the text, the text needed to require those words of me. Um, right. but that takes that that takes real time and contemplation and the ability to. To revise and revisit um, our deductions. Uh, But to say we can't do that, I think is the end of the whole science of theology and of preaching. Um, And the text itself, I was even thinking of Jesus to the Pharisees, whose son do you say, you know, whose son is the Messiah? Oh, the son of David? Well, then why does David say, you know, the Lord said to my Lord? And he's really pushing them to identify him not merely as son of David, but that's a that's a deduction that they are supposed to be deriving from the text arriving at a solid theological conviction. So it's not just that we can do this. It seems, and I think Ryan's good on this point, the text itself indicates that it expects us to do this. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. God's word demands it. Well, in any case, uh, that's, that's a good way of ending because this is a book for pastors and for lay people. It's a short little book um, explains things very well as Ryan always does. And it's an important topic. So, the book is called By Good and Necessary Consequence, published by our friends at uh, RHB. And again, as Ryan mentioned, it's, it's part of the series Explorations in Reformed Confessional uh, Theology. If you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of the book, uh, you can go to placefortruth.org and then click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a drop-down menu with this uh, and, a, and a button with this particular podcast, where you can enter your contact information and be entered for a chance to win this book by Good and Necessary Consequence by Ryan McGraw. I'd also like to say that we are grateful for you as our listeners. It's always nice when we hear from you. And so we would encourage you, you feel free to have, if you have uh, topic suggestions or other things, or if there are people that you know who might benefit from this podcast, please pass it along to them. If you're able to donate, to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And again, as always, we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
0: We've all faced unprecedented challenges here of late, and the Church has not been immune. Unable to gather, many have drifted away. Still others languish in churches that have forgotten the creeds and confessions that give clarity and focus to our faith. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a reformed awakening in today's church, and we need your help. To be salt and light in a dying world, we need a strong and committed church, equipped with the truth and ready to serve the gospel. Your prayers and financial gifts enable us to produce and deliver solid resources from trusted authors, teachers, and speakers in print, online, at our signature events, and on the air. You will make a difference for today and for eternity when you give online at Alliancenet.org donate or call 1-800-488-1888.